Hi, listeners. It's Carter from the Spotify original from ParCast Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we search for the real truth behind some of the most controversial happenings in history. Some of these events boil down to a matter of coincidence. Others are fraught with corruption, cover-ups, and powerful people with ulterior motives. People like the first director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Kate and I are thrilled to bring you this six-part crossover from conspiracy theories and dictators on the life, career, and conspiracies of J. Edgar Hoover. For more of history's most questionable events, follow Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify. On the morning of May 1st, 1936, J. Edgar Hoover nervously paced in his New Orleans hotel room. He waited with bated breath for confirmation that Alvin Creepy Carpus was in town. For the last few years, the Midwest had been terrorized by a loose coalition of bank robbers, men like John Dillinger and Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. Alvin Carpus was the last man standing and Hoover needed to take him down. Finally, just before 10 a.m., Hoover got the call. Carpus had just arrived at a house that was under surveillance. All afternoon, Hoover and his raiding party covertly waited outside the building. Just after 5 p.m., Hoover saw his white whale. Carpus and Fred Hunter, another criminal, emerged from the apartment and made their way to a nearby Plymouth. Carpus hopped into the driver's side and rolled down the window. Hoover pounced. He ran up to the car, reached through the open window, and grabbed Carpus by the collar. As Hoover told reporters the next day, he yelled, Put the cuffs on him, boys. After a years-long search, Hoover had finally nabbed the last so-called public enemy. In the weeks that followed, He basked in the glory, recounting the arrest to reporters. The press didn't realize that Hoover's version of the story was likely nothing but a tall tale. Hoover didn't mind embellishing the truth, so long as it served his ambitions. Welcome to J. Edgar Hoover, a six-part podcast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host, Kate. Over the course of this series, we're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known and possibly most hated FBI director. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today, we explore how Hoover exploited Depression-era gangsters in order to build the power and reputation of the Bureau of Investigation. With that newfound power, he was able to return to his crusade against communism, even if it meant skirting the law. Next time, we'll follow Hoover as the Cold War begins. We'll dive into his attempt to wrestle control over foreign intelligence while hunting for Soviet spies. And we'll explore how he helped give rise to McCarthyism. We'll head to the Depression-era Midwest right after this. 
we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? poltergeist activity do you believe in ghosts malevolent entities are aliens real could you be abducted we don't know but what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast scared to death exploring all of the possibilities each week we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales curious about the paranormal just like a spooky story do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days come join us new episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. At the end of 1924, 29-year-old J. Edgar Hoover was named permanent director of the Bureau of Investigation. After rebuilding the Bureau from top to bottom, Hoover was now the nation's top cop. To his core, Hoover was an anti-communist. He believed that there was no greater evil in this world. But by the time he became director, the perceived threat of the so-called Red Menace had fizzled. So Hoover looked for other cases that could bring the Bureau into the limelight. After the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's infant son, Copycats spread like wildfire. And Hoover wouldn't let this opportunity slip through his fingers. By the start of 1933, the Great Depression had entered its fourth year. It looked as if there was no end in sight. Destitution, foreclosure, and starvation were felt in just about every corner of the nation. People were desperate. The Lindbergh kidnapping actually inspired hope not in justice, but in the ability to extort the rich and famous in order to survive. As such, a wave of kidnappings and ransoms flooded the nation. Kidnappings were simply the beginning. They were soon surpassed by a crime far more adventurous, bank robberies. Beginning in 1933, the Midwest became a hotbed for bank robbers. 
Bandits like John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, and Babyface Nelson terrorized banks up and down the Mississippi River. Considering the desperation of the era, the public actually cheered these criminals on. Portrayed as modern-day Robin Hoods, they were seen as striking back at one of the most evil institutions of the decade, the bank. Naturally, J. Edgar Hoover despised everything these criminals stood for. In his view, they weren't just criminals, but animals who made a mockery of law, order, and decency. There was just one problem. Bank robbery wasn't a federal crime. But Hoover didn't have to wait too long for Congress to change the rules in his favor. And it was all thanks to an ambush in Kansas City, Missouri. In June 1933, bureau agents were assigned to help local police escort bank robber Frank Jelly Nash to Leavenworth Prison. They arrived in Kansas City on June 17th. The lawmen hopped off the train and made their way to their vehicle. Suddenly, they were ambushed by gunmen. Four lawmen, including a bureau agent, lay dead in the streets. Nash himself also died. Hoover seized on the so-called Kansas City Massacre. He loudly proclaimed that those who participated in this cold-blooded murder will be hunted down. Hoover had the full support of the newly appointed Attorney General, Homer Cummings. Cummings did everything he could to help Hoover, including lobbying Congress to reshape federal crime. Starting in May of 1934, Congress passed a series of laws that gave the Department of Justice, including the Bureau of Investigation, more authority. Among the new list of federal crimes was bank robbing and killing a federal agent. Hoover's war on crime had begun, and number one on his list of public enemies was John Dillinger. John Dillinger was charming, witty, and wily. In March 1934, he escaped prison using a fake gun carved out of wood. He was notorious for his disappearing acts. Not long after his astounding prison escape, word reached law enforcement that Dillinger and Babyface Nelson were holed up at the Little Bohemia Motel in Wisconsin. Federal agents, led by special agent in charge Melvin Purvis, raided the motel. But after a bloody shootout, Dillinger had disappeared again. Hoover fumed over this. Dillinger had made a mockery of the Bureau. So in June of that year, he added more agents to the hunt, slapped on a $10,000 bounty, and declared Dillinger public enemy number one. A month after the Little Bohemia shootout, Dillinger was in Chicago, living with a woman named Anna Sage. Facing deportation, Sage decided to help the Bureau in hopes it would save her. She reached out to Melvin Purvis, and with Hoover's blessing, they coordinated a sting operation. Hoover supplied guns and men for the operation, partially out of his will to get the job done, but also to ensure that no one man walked away with all the glory. On the evening of July 22, 1934, Purvis and a team of agents ambushed Dillinger as he exited a theater in Chicago. Dillinger reached for his gun, but Purvis's men fired first. In a matter of seconds, 
Dillinger lay dead in the alley. For over a decade, Hoover had hunted the white whale that would truly legitimize the bureau he was building. He'd finally caught what he was looking for. Unfortunately, he had to share the spotlight with Melvin Purvis. Purvis didn't kill Dillinger, and he never claimed he did. But that didn't stop the press from labeling him as the man who took down public enemy number one. Purvis's fame only increased when, a few months later, he led the ambush that resulted in the death of Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. Once again, the press hailed Purvis as a hero, despite Purvis not once taking credit. Hoover loathed the Purvis hero worship, and before long, he loathed Purvis. But he knew he couldn't fire Purvis. The optics would be terrible. Even the press would realize it was out of ego. Instead, he made Purvis's life unbearable. Hoover took Purvis off major bank robbing cases and assigned him to mundane office inspections in neighboring cities. Hoover and his cronies also vocally downplayed Purvis's role in both the Dillinger and Floyd cases. In 1935, after a year of Hoover's harassment, Purvis resigned. The irony of Hoover's war against Purvis was that Hoover himself was reluctant to be in the limelight. Yes, he desperately wanted cases to bring credibility to the Bureau, but he didn't want to be, quote, sacrificing the personal privacy he had. However, the war on crime did create an opportunity to build up the image of the Bureau. Hoover's boss, A.G. Cummings, not only brought in a public relations assistant, he also advocated for a name change. And thus, the Bureau of Investigation officially became the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Whatever shyness Hoover had quickly dissipated, especially once Hollywood came knocking. In the early 1930s, gangster films were all the rage. Little Caesar, The Public Enemy, and Scarface glamorized the criminal. But in 1934, Hollywood adopted the Hayes Code. Gangster films were essentially banned. However, there was a workaround. Instead of making the gangster the main character, make the lawman the star. In 1935, Warner Brothers released G-Men, starring Jimmy Cagney, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Cagney played an FBI agent who hunted down criminals based on Dillinger and Babyface Nelson. The film was a massive hit and boosted the image of the lawman. In fact, as author Brian Burrow notes, in just days, it did what reality hadn't enshrining Hoover as the symbolic head of the nation's crime-fighting forces. 1935 became the year of G-Men, or government men. For the rest of the year, the public watched G-Men movies, listened to G-Men radio programs, and read G-Men pulp magazines. By the end of that year, the FBI and 40-year-old J. Edgar Hoover had become superheroes to the American public. Of course, with glory came criticism, and Hoover had his fair share. One of the primary comments was that he'd never made an arrest, a fact that consistently weighed on his ego. In 1936, 
Hoover requested $5 million from Congress, double the Bureau's budget. During his testimony before Congress, Senator Kenneth McKellar got Hoover to publicly admit that he'd never made an actual arrest. Hoover was incensed. By this point, there was only one major public enemy left to catch, Alvin Karpis. Hoover demanded that his agents find Alvin Karpis, and once they did, Hoover himself would apprehend him. That April, the FBI learned that Karpis was in New Orleans. Hoover flew down and assembled a team. According to Hoover, on May 1st, Karpis left his apartment and got into a car. But before he could start the engine, Hoover ran up, reached inside, grabbed Karpis by the collar and shouted, Put the cuffs on him, boys. That same day, the New York Times headline read, Carpus captured in New Orleans by Hoover himself. If that sounds like a cheesy cop drama, that's because it might be. According to Carpus's 1971 autobiography, Hoover only arrived after law enforcement grabbed him and had him surrounded. Even the FBI's official files refute Hoover's claims that he made the official arrest. The files state that Hoover was simply part of the raid. All discrepancies aside, the whole situation did cement J. Edgar Hoover as the nation's top cop. Hoover could have used the momentum to continue the war on crime. But Hoover wasn't interested in going after gangsters. With the Bureau growing and gaining power, he went back to fighting his lifelong nemesis, communism. Coming up, Hoover's power struggles alter the course of U.S. history. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire length some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the mid-1930s, J. Edgar Hoover was on top of the world. Thanks to the success of the war on crime, the FBI had cemented itself as the nation's top law enforcement agency. But rather than pursue more gangsters, Hoover made a sharp U-turn. He used the global rise of fascism to antagonize communists in the U.S. Throughout the 1920s and mid-1930s, Fascism spread throughout Europe. Italy fell to Benito Mussolini in 1922. 
Adolf Hitler took control of Germany in 1933, and Francisco Franco started ruling Spain in 1936. The United States wasn't immune to the wave of the far right either. Fascism, by its very nature, is reactionary. And as the Great Depression lingered, disgruntled Americans saw its appeal. Perhaps they thought the U.S. needed its own strongman. In particular, Nazism captured the attention of many Americans. But it wasn't just anti-Semites or KKK members who viewed Hitler favorably. Prominent Americans did too. In fact, arguably one of the most prominent Nazi sympathizers was none other than Charles Lindbergh. President Franklin D. Roosevelt feared the spread of fascism, and it wasn't mere paranoia. In 1933, a group of prominent businessmen approached General Smedley Butler to lead a fascist coup against the government. They wanted to depose FDR and install Butler, a war hero, as dictator. Unfortunately for them, Butler had become anti-imperialist and anti-fascist. In the fall of 1934, he testified before Congress, revealing the coup. However, with little concrete evidence to back Butler's claim, investigation into the so-called business plot withered. That's why, in May 1934, FDR instructed Hoover to investigate the growing fascist movement. But Hoover didn't believe fascism posed the biggest threat to national security. Yes, he kept tabs on the Nazi-inspired groups and public figures, but he spent the majority of his time sniffing out communism. To be fair, the 1930s did see a resurgence in communism, mainly as a response to the Great Depression. As author Ted Morgan notes, the Great Depression allowed the Communist Party to transform itself into a champion of the unemployed. Throughout the decade, communism and labor unions became synonymous. As the Communist Party and labor movement grew, so did Hoover's fears, which were only exacerbated when FDR became the first president to recognize the Soviet Union. This meant that the Soviets could now open an embassy in the U.S and thus invite Soviet spies onto U.S. soil. To convince FDR that communism posed a larger threat than fascism, Hoover pulled a Hail Mary. In August 1936, he told the president that communists had infiltrated unions in three major industries, shipping, coal, and the press. He warned that through these groups, they, quote, would be able to paralyze the country. But there was a problem. Hoover didn't have the authority to conduct a massive intelligence gathering operation into the supposed communists. However, there was a 1916 statute that claimed the State Department could enlist the Bureau to investigate political dissidents. So FDR called a meeting with Hoover and the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull. According to Hoover, during the meeting, FDR proclaimed that both communist and fascist movements were, quote, international in scope, and that communism in particular was directed from Moscow. Hull turned to Hoover and immediately gave him the green light. Hoover now had full authority to spy on Americans. This meeting served as an early example of Hoover's capability under FDR, and as we know, 
FDR was president for a long time. From there, Hoover got to work. He relied on the same techniques used during the Palmer raids, wiretapping, bugging, opening mail, breaking and entering, and rebooting the much maligned General Intelligence Division. But although Hoover was now America's leading domestic spy, he wasn't America's only spy. Not only did the military have its own intelligence gathering divisions, but so did federal agencies like the State Department and Post Office. Hoover resented this. While he was fine working alongside the military in other situations, when it came to civilian spying, he wanted the FBI to be the only intelligence agency. Things changed in his favor on September 1st, 1939, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. And although FDR declared that the U.S. would remain neutral in World War II, he also announced that all investigations into espionage would be controlled by the FBI. By now, FDR had grown to trust Hoover. He saw Hoover as thorough, competent, and loyal. So he gave the FBI the lead. Hoover egregiously abused this new level of power, which landed him in hot water with Attorney General Robert Jackson. Jackson discovered that Hoover had created the custodial detention program. This was a list of both immigrants and citizens who were to be sent to internment camps if circumstances demanded. But instead of ordering Hoover to destroy the program, Jackson tried to wrestle control of it. Hoover placated Jackson by giving him summaries of the list, but not the raw material. The list ultimately remained in place. And when he later questioned Hoover about it, Hoover simply created a new filing system to throw them off the scent. But without question, the biggest battle between Hoover and Jackson was over the use of wiretaps. In December of 1939, the Supreme Court declared wiretapping illegal. A few months later, Jackson announced that the Justice Department would abide by that ruling. But Hoover had a plan to override him. In May 1940, he informed the Treasury Secretary that there were Nazi spies working in Buffalo and that the Canadian Mounted Police asked for American assistance in gathering intelligence. He claimed he was unable to help without the use of wiretaps. This claim reached FDR. The next day, the president informed A.G. Jackson that while he agreed in principle with the Supreme Court's decision, in times of national security, wiretaps were necessary. By presidential memo, Hoover got his wiretaps. For the next 25 years, he used FDR's decree to issue nearly 7,000 warrantless wiretaps and over 1,700 bugs. This was a major power coup for Hoover. Moving forward, he decided which cases were investigative and which were intelligence. The former meant keeping the AG informed. The latter was for the president's eyes and ears only. As Hoover's power grew, he naturally turned his thoughts toward expanding into foreign surveillance. Hoover argued that the United States was way behind when it came to foreign espionage. He planted the idea in FDR's ear, but he wasn't the only one with a plan. 
Hoover's old nemesis, William Wildbill Donovan, was also pursuing control over foreign intelligence gathering. Legally, the U.S. couldn't help Europeans fight the Nazis due to FDR's neutrality mandate. But that didn't stop the British from trying to get covert American aid. An operative working for British intelligence named William Stevenson was sent to Hoover to see if the FBI and British intelligence could work together. Hoover told Stevenson he would need approval from FDR, to which FDR subtly replied, yes. Stevenson, however, wasn't entirely comfortable working with Hoover, especially as he realized Hoover had a bit of dislike for the British. So Stevenson also got in contact with his backup plan, Bill Donovan. Stevenson knew that Donovan and FDR had a special history. He believed that Donovan provided direct access to FDR, which would allow him to circumvent Hoover's authority. Throughout the spring of 1941, Stevenson befriended Donovan. He made the appeal that the FBI couldn't compete with other countries' espionage agencies. They were simply stretched too thin. But a separate agency could handle the work. Meanwhile, FDR was coming to the same conclusion on his own. Hoover and Donovan were constantly feuding over authority. The president realized he needed a separate intelligence office out of the FBI and military's control. Eventually, Stevenson gave Donovan British intelligence to pass along to FDR. The president, in turn, was impressed with what he saw. So on July 11, 1941, he named Donovan head of the newly created Office of Coordinator of Information. The COI would eventually be renamed the Office of Strategic Services. This was a major blow to Hoover, but true to his nature, he got payback. The OSS was so poorly run in its early days that Hoover was able to infiltrate it with his own agents and spy on their activities. And because the FBI was responsible for OSS background checks, Hoover had files on all of Donovan's agents. But while Hoover busied himself with all this, he completely missed intelligence that suggested an immediate, real threat to the United States. In the spring of 1941, the FBI learned that Nazi spies were feeding information to the Japanese about the Hawaiian Islands. And later that summer, a British double agent informed the FBI that the Japanese were asking questions about Pearl Harbor's defenses. Many have since argued that this intelligence was neither specific nor complete. However, Hoover also distrusted double agents, which might partly explain why he refused to act upon the numerous reports that the Japanese were planning something in Hawaii. It was a fatal error. On December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, hauling the U.S. into World War II. Coming up, Hoover targets Nazi spies. Now back to the story. Throughout the latter half of the 1930s, J. Edgar Hoover used the rise of fascism as a means to build the power of the FBI 
and resume his crusade against communism. However, Hoover wasn't fully trusting of reports they received of an impending attack on Pearl Harbor. Thus, America entered World War II. If there was one organization prepared for war, it was the FBI. For years, Hoover had curated lists of perceived threats to the U.S., both foreign and domestic. Now, he was able to put those lists to use. Almost immediately, newly appointed Attorney General Francis Biddle signed warrants for names on Hoover's lists. Within three days of the attack on Pearl Harbor, agents arrested 3,846 Japanese, German, and Italian immigrants and ushered them toward possible deportation. Beyond rounding up potential spies, Hoover had other weapons in his war arsenal, some old favorites and some new. As expected, the FBI used wiretaps, burglaries, and mail openings. They also clamped down on the press. Hoover threatened to jail journalists illegally based on their reporting on Pearl Harbor. Hoover was also given authority to inspect telecommunications sent throughout the United States. He demanded that cable companies like Western Union and RCA hold off on sending telegrams for the FBI to examine first. The FBI continued to read telegrams even after the war. With America in the midst of war, Hoover's mission was to identify Nazi and Japanese spies. And in the summer of 1942, Hoover stumbled into a major Nazi spy ring. On the evening of June 13, 1942, Coast Guardsman John Cullen was patrolling a beach off Long Island when he suddenly spotted four men near the surf. Cullen was suspicious. He approached the four men and demanded to know what they were doing. The men claimed they were stranded fishermen, but Cullen didn't buy it. His suspicions were confirmed when the men attempted to bribe him into looking the other way. Cullen had heard rumors that German U-boats were seen off the coast, and he feared that the men were, in fact, German spies. But he was alone and unarmed. So he took the bribe money, ran back to the Coast Guard station, and reported the incident. The next morning, Cullen's superiors returned to the spot. When they arrived, they discovered a cache of weapons, explosives, and German uniforms. Hoover learned of the incident just after noon on June 14th. When he did, he convinced his higher-ups to let the FBI run point and to keep everything a secret. The last thing he wanted was to spook the Nazi spies. Little did Hoover realize some of these Nazis were already having cold feet. Their leader was George Dash. Born and raised in Germany, Dash fled to the United States after World War I and built a life in America. However, he returned to Germany in 1941, got a job in the German Foreign Office, and was soon recruited to become a spy. After running into John Cullen, Dash and his men made their way into New York City. In a hotel room, Dash expressed doubts to his partner, Ernst Berger. Berger, a naturalized citizen, also had divided loyalties. He suggested they take their suitcase of money and run. But Dash had another idea. 
go to the FBI. Dash called the FBI's New York office, but he was transferred to the so-called nut desk. Even though the FBI was on high alert for Nazi saboteurs, the agent on the phone thought Dash was ridiculous, so he brushed him off. On June 18th, Dash traveled to Washington, D.C. and demanded to speak with Hoover. He managed to get in a room with one of Hoover's assistants, dumping almost $84,000 onto a table as proof of his tale. It was only then that Dash was allowed to meet with Hoover himself. Over the next eight days, Dash revealed everything, including the plan for a U-boat to deliver another team of saboteurs off the coast of Florida. The goal was to inspire a wave of terror in the U.S. But the wave never came. In the days that followed, Dash's New York team and the Florida team were all arrested. As a reward for his defection, Dash got 30 years in prison. Meanwhile, his partner Berger received life, and the six others were executed. Eventually, Dash and Berger were both pardoned and deported to Germany. Hoover knew what had fallen into his lap. Dismantling a Nazi sabotage ring was the perfect anecdote to sculpt the FBI's image. Except, of course, for the fact that the FBI did none of the work. The whole thing was due to Dash's defection. But Hoover fudged those details to the press and to FDR. According to Hoover, Dash never turned himself in. He was apprehended by FBI agents. And for the rest of the war, the public believed Hoover. Even though Hoover's main objective was to root out Nazi spies, that didn't mean he stopped his crusade against communists and labor unions. And as the war dragged on, Hoover discovered that America's Soviet allies were as big of a threat as he'd always feared. Since 1940, the FBI had been spying on Steve Nelson, a Croatian-born communist who lived in Oakland, California. A special agent of Hoover's believed Nelson was so important that in 1941, he was placed on the infamous custodial detention list. In the spring of 1943, the FBI recorded Nelson as he met with a Soviet diplomat named Vasily Zarubin. Zarubin told Nelson that Moscow wanted to place communists and Soviet agents in various parts of American industry. Unbeknownst to the FBI, Zarubin was more than just a diplomat. He was head of Soviet espionage operations in the United States. Spying on Nelson resulted in an even more shocking discovery. While in the Bay Area, Nelson was in contact with U.S. physicists who were working on a top-secret project. Even Hoover didn't know what exactly this project was. On May 7th, Hoover informed the White House of what he learned. A Soviet spy network in the U.S. was up to something big. A few weeks later, he finally learned what those scientists were working on. The Manhattan Project the secret effort to build an atomic bomb. Realizing the dire situation they were in, Hoover created two new operations, the Communist Infiltration of Radiation Laboratory and the Comintern Apparatus. 
but this effort put him back on a collision course with his old nemesis, Wild Bill Donovan. Even throughout the war, Hoover and Donovan battled each other for authority. Though Donovan controlled the OSS, Hoover was given control of international spying in the Western Hemisphere, namely in Latin America. At times, both attempted to sabotage the other's operations. For example, Hoover often refused to share information with the OSS about Latin American espionage. And Donovan had OSS agents invade Hoover's turf by spying on the Spanish embassy in Washington, D.C. Hoover's animosity toward Donovan intensified once he began digging into the Soviet spy ring. The reason? Donovan was working with the NKVD, the Soviet Union's secret police. In February 1944, Hoover discovered that Donovan made a deal with the NKVD. Donovan would be allowed to place OSS agents in Moscow if the NKVD could place agents in Washington. According to author Richard Dunlop, Donovan reasoned that an agreement between the OSS and the NKVD would not enable the communists to learn more than they were in a position to learn already. And besides, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies in the war. If the U.S. could share intel with the British, they could surely share intel with the Soviets. Hoover immediately went to work undermining the deal. He protested to FDR's personal advisor, the Attorney General, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Not only did he correctly claim that Soviet spies had already penetrated the OSS, but that they were also stealing secrets about the atomic bomb. Once FDR heard Hoover's concerns, he agreed to postpone the NKVD deal. However, unbeknownst to Hoover and FDR, Donovan had already begun to give the NKVD intelligence and equipment, all of which were being put to use against the U.S. With the discovery of Soviet espionage within the United States, it only made sense, in Hoover's mind, that the FBI take control of all intelligence gathering when the war ended. However, Donovan thought he should be the one to lead a peacetime intelligence agency. From the outset, the OSS was only chartered to run through the war. Naturally, Hoover despised the idea of Donovan remaining in power any longer, especially after the NKVD debacle. So, with the help of allies in military intelligence, Hoover tried to stop Donovan before FDR could agree to extend his mandate. One of FDR's aides supplied detailed reports on various OSS blunders. And somehow, perhaps through Hoover, the press caught wind of them. But Donovan wasn't going to go down without a fight, and he had plenty of ammo to go after Hoover. At the end of February 1945, an OSS agent stationed in Thailand was reading through Amerasia, a leftist magazine covering American-Asian affairs. He soon discovered something strange. One of the articles was almost verbatim a secret report he himself had written months prior. The agent, of course, told his superiors. When word got back to the U.S., the OSS expedited an investigation into Amerasia. 
On March 11th, five agents broke into the journal's New York offices and discovered over 300 stolen government documents, including 20 marked top secret. The investigation revealed that they'd been stolen by a Chinese communist spy ring. As it happened, Amerasia's offices were just down the street from the FBI, and yet Hoover had no idea about the leaks. According to author Curtis Gentry, this was the opening Donovan needed. He used the FBI's fumble as an argument for a permanent intelligence agency, one with Donovan in charge, not Hoover. FDR told Donovan he was willing to entertain the idea. Taking that as a sign, Donovan flew to Europe and began making plans with his agents for a future organization. Donovan had bested Hoover, and things were about to get even worse for the FBI. Soon after Donovan received his proverbial green light, President Franklin D. Roosevelt died. He had served 12 years in office. Under FDR, Hoover had been able to expand the Bureau's powers like never before. But the new president, Harry Truman, was about to check all that power. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll dive into Hoover's hunt for Soviet spies as the nascent Cold War heats up and how it created another Red Scare. Among the many sources we used, we found Curtis Gentry's J. Edgar Hoover, The Man and the Secrets, and Tim Weiner's Enemies, especially useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Brian Petrus. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.